Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. I am your co-host, Ken Cameron, and I'm sitting here with my most excellent, learned, erudite, and historically prescient co-host, Russell Stratton. A nice view back, and thank you for the uh, the bullshit introduction there, Ken. I appreciate it. There was it. no bullshit involved, <laughs> Russell. You're being far too modest and oh, far, too, okay. uh, far too disparaging. No, the truth is, you know, one of the things I really enjoy about our talks, Russell, are the many rabbit holes that we often go down in our, in our discussions. <laughs> and usually those rabbit holes are rife with historical lessons. So today's topic is going to be the, I believe this is the third in our irregular installment of leadership. Leadership Lessons from History. And so you've chosen uh, to walk us through two leaders in history and to pull a little bit of lessons from those individuals. So with that in mind, let's get right to it. Who are the two leaders from history that you're going to introduce us to today, Russell? Well, I've picked two people again from across the seas in the in the mother country, uh, and uh, one is uh, General Sir John Moore, uh, famous for his um, military career ending in the Peninsula War in eighteen oh eight, and the second is um, Irish singer songwriter and musician Phil Lynott. So, uh, quite uh, two different different characters separated by a good couple of hundred years. So uh, not quite as long as Churchill and Boudicca, I think, but it was uh, sort of getting up there, but uh, but, quite, but quite different in terms of um, you know, who, who they are, what their background was, and what their history was. Well, I can't wait to hear, learn about these two individuals and also about the parallels between them. So this is uh, th- this is so interesting for me too because I often learn things that I have ad- know absolutely nothing about from you. So I'm really glad that these are again topics that I, I I am ignorant about. So I will be I will like several of our listeners be be asking questions from a place of ignorance in terms of like that I don't know who. Not that I'm calling our listeners ignorant by any stretch of the imagination, but simply that I don't know who these individuals are. But one thing I do know about you, Russell, is that you have a penchant for military history and that um, the military, there's a military tradition that runs through your family. Why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about the, um, just a little briefly about that background before we leap into talking about these individuals? Uh, for sure, yeah. I mean, uh, it's various members of my my family had served in the uh, um, military um, in the United Kingdom over the, over the years, uh, both my um, uh, grandfathers had uh, served in the Royal Navy and Royal Air Force, respectively. Both were killed during World War uh, II. My father served in the British Army. Uh, had um, great grandfathers who'd served in the in, in the British Army going back in in time. And um, I'd even dabbled with the idea of joining the uh, the army myself when I was in my teenage years, but unfortunately. Um, a series of sports injuries, which involved me uh, shattering my shoulder, um, put play to that idea I had of any time of, of of joining the joining the army. But I will very quickly tell you a, a story. At the age of fifteen, I went to the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, um, where all of uh, Britain's um, army officers, going back a good couple hundred years, had been trained for a three day um, sort of. You know, exploratory visit with with many um, other uh, individuals of the same, similar sort of age, about fifteen years old, and it was my first lesson really coming up in a um, sort of working class background of the British class system at play at its very best. 
because as I was there, one of the things that they did was you know maybe maybe 150 um, sort of individuals there. Um, you were separated into two groups, and they separated by whether you went to a private fee-paying school or whether you went to a uh, what was called um, a uh, just a, a comprehensive school in the general sort of standard school system. So there was a very large group that went to a fee-paying public schools and a very small group of people like me who went to um, comprehend- comprehensive. And uh, as we were lined up, um, I was lined up opposite a group of uh, guys who'd come from 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 one of uh, the uh, uh, public guy. I think it could have been the, it could have been. Um, it have been Harrow or Marlborough. So it was one of the much more better-to-do, wealthier schools. And as the major came down the lineup, speaking alternatively one side to the other, you were asked um, had you uh, what school you went to and had you got any military connections in your family. So if you can imagine, there I am standing there. Yes, I had military connections in my family, but nobody had got into the officer ranks. Everybody had been in um, either private soldier or maybe maybe a corporal, as my father had, whereas the opposite side, everybody had been um, an officer. So you just imagine there, I come down, I'm 15 years old, down comes the major, he asked the guy opposite me, um, yeah, what school did he go to? And I think he said he went to Marlborough. And they said, "Oh, do you have military connections?" And he said, "Yes, um, you know, my my name." And he said, "Name." And it, and he had a double-barreled name, and it was something like Ponsonby Smythe. wasn't, but it sounded like that. And he said, "Oh, military connections." He said, "Yes, my father, my uncle, my grandfather." And he said, "He said not, not you know, Toddy." Ponsonby Smythe, who played in the first 15 at Marlborough, and he was like, oh, yes, my uncle, sir. And not Smithy Fotherington Smythe, um, who you served in, oh, yes, my father. Ah, excellent, excellent. So they were having this conversation about some, you know, rugby team and uh, a public school, and then he turned to me and said, and your father of military collections? Yes, he was a he was a lance corporal in the Royal Signals, and he went, oh, and walked on. And I alert that. It was the difference between the O oh, that you had come from the other ranks as against what a wonderful fellow, as he'd said to the guy opposite me, whose father and grandfather and uncle had all been, you know, uh, decorated officers of many generations back in the British Army. So it was a telling lesson for me of the British class system at play um, in that moment. So a few months later, when you shattered your shoulder in a uh, cricket accident, then <laughs> you were like, oh, thank God that I'm now so injured I can't possibly join this uh, the, 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 this Ponzi organization. It, it, it has changed to a degree, um, but at the time that was probably in the sort of mid-'80s. It was still very much of that tradition that there were certain people were going to be officers and certain people were going to be other ranks, and you didn't you didn't cross over between between the two often and if you did it was it could be a difficult um transition for people um so with that in mind uh, one of the uh, individuals that I chose is, is general sir john moore who uh, uh one of the heroes of the british army from the peninsula wars and somebody could we reminded me of somebody i have been been read up on in the past but you sent me an article about him a few weeks ago uh, and I think it was entitled, was he, um, you know, British Britain's greatest general that nobody knew, or something like that. And and that was probably one of the things with with Sir, with Sir John Moore, in that he's very much been overshadowed 
by his perhaps more illustrious counterparts, Sir Arthur Wellesley, better known as the Duke of Wellington, who most people will have heard of, um, with his um, victory over the French in the Peninsular War and in victory over Napoleon at Waterloo, whereas Sir John Moore, um, who at the time was the better known of the two and the more successful, um, disappeared perhaps into the fringes of history, partly the reason because he was killed at the comparatively young age for a general of 47 in 1808. Um, but just a little bit about Sir John and why why I, he, he impressed me as a and a lessons for, of, of leadership. Um, born in 1761 in Scotland, he joined the army at the age of 16. So he was only a little bit older than me when I had my first the chance to visit um, uh, the military academy at Sandhurst. Um, for in the War of Independence in, the United, in uh, what then became the United States. Um, in Corsica during the French Revolutionary War, served in the West Indies, Ireland, Holland, Egypt, Sicily, Sweden, before he was responsible for a sort of stint of home duty, when he was responsible for the system of what were called the Martello Towers, over 100 that were built between 1805 and 1814, which, if you don't know, were small um, defensive positions we would typically have about 25, 30 men guarding them, and they were built all the way around the coast of Britain to guard against the potential French invasion. There were also um, a number were built in Canada between the, for our Canadian listeners, between the years of, um, what was it, 1796 and 1870. I think there's a, there may be uh, 10 or 11 of them still survive, and they were built uh, by the British to defend against the French, unsurprisingly, and then um, to to protect Canada from the new fledgling United States. Um, so, yeah, they were. he was responsible for that design and the build of them in um, UK, and then obviously that, that uh, design was continued across in North America. And what's special about those towers? What is it that made them so significant that so many of them were built over such a long period of time? I, I think what it was is that they were, they were small, imagine a sort of... Um, uh, a, a round tower with some firing points on it, and they were fa- they were fairly easy to build and fairly easy to defend. With a, you weren't tying up large numbers of troops, so you could space them out, and then you could have a warning um, fire as well, so that you could uh, light that and signal from it and be able to pass on that what was going on. So you could um, signal from one tower to the other as to what was happening. So it was a lot of an early warning system and a small defensive position at the same time. So you can imagine with 100 or so, only about 30 men in each one, you weren't tying up vast amounts of troops in great defensive positions that the enemy could just, you know, circle round and avoid. Um but they were still very useful as um, a signal tower and a uh, defensive position, hence them being built in Canada as well. So he was involved with uh, getting those built. And they were built on the continent as well, but the design was brought over to the uh, to the to the UK. Um, his other main sort of uh, point before his involvement in the Peninsula War was he was. Uh, he he formed the first permanent light infantry regiments in the British Army at Shorncliffe Barracks. So this was very much you can imagine. It's a time in the early sort of 
early 19th century, a very linear way of, of fighting, you know, bright red coats for the British, blue coats for the French, you know, white for the Austrians, and, you know, you lined up across from each other and marched towards each other and, you know, exchanged volleys firing and bayonet charges and things like this. But it was very controlled. The idea of light infantry very much picked up from his time in um, what became the United States in the War of Independence, where you would have uh, skirmishers, uh, green jackets, lying down, um, hiding behind trees, independently moving a fire. Um, very much, I suppose, a precursor to what we would expect modern-day infantrymen to do worldwide, but at the time was not considered something that was 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 familiar. Um, and we've spoken before, uh, touched on the, the War of 1812 between Canada, Britain, and the United States. You know, that type of irregular warfare on the frontier wasn't something that was often carried across into um, most of the European armies um, on a large scale. Most of them had like a Jaeger battalion or light infantry. Um, and so he he was the one that first uh, organised that in a formalised way. Um, the French had had that in their revolutionary armies, had a lot of skirmishers um, who led on for their main force. And this was the sort of British answer to this, um, but the desires by, by Sir John Moore. And was this generally accepted or was this something that was frowned upon as being, quote, not cricket, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was not popular with, with certain people in the in the establishment because it wasn't, you know, you weren't standing up and, you know, marching in a drilled fashion. You know, still a lot in the British Army at that time that the drill manual came from, um, based upon Frederick the, the, the Great of Prussia and his type of uh, approach. Um, Napoleon, with the Revolutionary Wars, had sort of changed that round a little, a lot more flexible, a little more um, you know, able to adapt quicker. And yeah, so the the idea of having light infantry was not something that was um, perhaps welcomed by everybody, but gradually became the norm. And as I say, if you now look at infantry tactics, they are based upon those light infantry tactics. Uh, going back to the to the that time at Shawncliffe Barracks under under Sir John Moore, um, and I'm sure that our listeners are. Sorry. I'm sure that our listeners are already uh, super impressed with your knowledge of military tactics, just just from the description here verbally. But if they were able to see us, we, we don't record these these podcasts; they're just audio. But if you were able to see behind Russell on the Zoom call, as I can, you would see that behind Russell ranges this large green table with little red coated figurine, red and blue coated figurines, where in which Russell has laid out a reenactment of one of the battles from the American Revolution. You were telling me just before we started the podcast, Russell. Oh yeah, so this. Was the, the the Battle of Cowpens that took place in uh, I think seventeen eighty one or something like that? But uh, uh, again, when you st- that was oh, John Moore served in the Northern Theatre during that 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 war, um, and that's where he would have got a lot of the ideas because um, the the idea of that sort of backwoodsman, you know, somebody who's a hunter or a gamekeeper, somebody who's a good shot, somebody who can work independently. Um, a lot of that was pioneered from the, I suppose, from the British experience from the French and Indian Wars um, in northern US and Canada, and then the more American War of Independence late, late, later on. Um, so that's where that they sort of seen that um, happen. They then adopted those those tactics, and then um, Sir John Moore was somebody who then brought that into the main establishment. And one of the you know, famous uh, British um, regiments at the time, the 95th um, Rifles. Um, of uh, 
Bernard Cornwall's Sharp fame, if you've ever watched that series, that show and series of novels, was all based um, on that particular um, unit and that style of tactics. And um, Sir John brought that um, into the British military establishment. Um, he went off to the peninsula, leading the small British expeditionary force in 1808 and uh, started their advance into Portugal. And then a much larger French force um, joined by Napoleon um, arrived. The British were forced to retreat and they they had a rather shambolic in many ways um, retreat through the mountains to the, the port of Corona, um, not dissimilar to the retreat on Dunkirk in World War II, a similar type of thing. You know, we, Britain's only got a small army and we need to get as many of them away as possible. Um, you and I remember have watched that um, wonderful movie, Dunkirk, that was done like a few years ago, um, showing that in World War II. Um, not dissimilar in, 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 in the Peninsula War. And, uh, you know, Moore had set his forces so he would fire like a rearguard action to try and get as many of them off as he could, which he did. Um, unfortunately, at the moment of triumph, winning the battle, um, he was killed. Um, and hence... You know, we always sort of wonder what if because um, you know he he died was was sort of buried in in Portugal and um, off we off we went and then um, later on Sir Arthur Wellesley came on took over the British army uh, that was in the peninsula and obviously went on to great deeds there and into France and then in Belgium at Waterloo. So, and for our listeners who aren't uh, don't follow some of that some of that language, when you talk about the Peninsular War, we're talking about a war during the Napoleonic era in the Iberian Peninsula that is Portugal and Spain. Absolutely, and this was a kind of a precursor to the actual final battles that took uh, that took Napoleon out of power, um, which didn't which didn't ultimately occur until eighteen. 1815, finally. 1815. And, of course, most of the, the thing was that most of the um, the bigger battles in Napoleon's time was spent fighting against the Austrians, the Prussians, and then he's ill-fated the expedition into Russia in 1812. He also had generals fighting the British in um, Spain and Portugal, as you say, and one of the contributing factors to it was the fact that it drew forces away from his other campaigns. Although Napoleon only at that time um, against Moore ever set foot in in, in Spain to fight the, the British, and I must say British with the allies of the Spanish and uh, Portuguese. Um, he spent most of his time in mainland mainland Europe. So, you know, that uh, British army then had, had sort of cut its teeth as a professional force really during that Peninsula War because up to that point hadn't uh, fought too much on the continent in major European, um, you know, land land battles for some time. Right. So, thank you for that brief background and introduction <laughs> to uh, Sir John Moore. And now you've uh, pulled from there. I understand for us three lessons, three leadership lessons that yeah. we can well, pull from well, that story. The, the first one may be a little a little obvious as for a um, for a soldier, and that was that was leading from the front. Um, and I think a lesson from he's not our you know. Not shying away from being there in the uh, at the at the front end of, of of the action, obviously quite literally in his in his situation. But as leaders in general, you know, you, I've always said you can't lead people from your office on the fifteenth floor. You know, you have to at, at times be at the um, job site. You have to be on the shop floor. You have to be um, there 
in the offices or out on the road with people. You have to be with the people that you lead um, so that you can understand what they're, what they're doing, um, what some of the frustrations are for them, what's not working, and be able to make your decisions accordingly. So, so I think, you know, whether it's 1808 in the retreat um, from, from Karana or it's in a corporate environment in 2021, there is a requirement for a leader to step out from that office environment um, or their command tent and actually be there at the front with the people that that work for them um, so that they can um, see them. Um, they can also be inspired by them, um, but also so they know exactly what's going on. Well then, uh, second leadership lesson that we second, can take from the Second point from there is in the to- for the times he was, and I'll put comparatively humane commander, bearing in mind that this was you know the early 19th century. People were treated a lot perhaps uh, rougher than they are now. But bear in mind that the British Army, like a number of um, armed forces at that time, still, still employed flogging as a disciplinary offence. So for basically any offence that you had... Um, you could be flogged, and that could be, you know, and that's with the cat and nine tails, and you know, bare bare backed, and could be anything from twenty lashes to you know two hundred lashes. Sir John Moore was not a guy who flogged his troops. That's not to say it didn't take place at all under his command, but it was not a disciplinary method that he um, sought to employ unless it was in sort of extenuating circumstances. Um, because he believed that you weren't going to um, be able to get people to do what you wanted, being, I suppose, to use modern management speak, to be engaged, to be on mission, if you just flog them into, 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 into submission. Um, and there was a great saying not attributed to him that said, the only thing that flogging teaches a man is how to turn his back. So whilst it was widespread across the the, the, the military um, in many countries at that time, it wasn't something that he employed. He was also keen about providing proper um, uh, food and accommodation for his men. Um, he was also keen on them learning how to read and write and felt that if people could imp- were given the opportunity to improve themselves, that they would do it, um, even if they were... Um, some of the you know sort of poorest people because most people who joined the ranks in the military in that day did it because it was either prison or they were starving. Now it wasn't a career choice for most people. Um, that, but if you gave them the opportunity to improve themselves and you treated people in a humane way, that they would respond, and that was very much his his method, which would be recognised today, but was quite unusual in certain circumstances. And so the, engagement over punishment. Yeah, mm-hmm. for, for, for sure. And, and, and the third thing with this was his, was his innovation. I mean, not just the Martello Towers, but also those whole life infantry tactics that he brought in to, to play. And the key wasn't so much just that they were, were taught to fight in a different way. It was the fact that he was training soldiers to act independently. So the idea that they would move, um, f- move and fire, um, using pop-up targets to practice their accuracy, using live ammunition to practice their accuracy at a time when most other units didn't because, you know, um, like most governments, the British government was pretty parsimonious when it came to its military in peacetime. Um, Why pay for live ammunition when you could just pretend? 
know, so you've got men that weren't actually trained on how to fire the weapon regularly, whereas he did. He wanted marksmanship, which is why he was keen to recruit people who had been, you know, um, hunters or who had been um, gamekeepers or poachers even, because people who could who could shoot, who were used to being able to to move unseen. Um, that could think and work independently. And again, we take that for granted with our military now, but if you think back over 200 years, that when you're talking about very highly disciplined men moving in, um, you know, in, in concert together, to have people where you say, well, get them to think independently without having an officer or a, an NCO right by them was, 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 was unusual. So innovation, you know, inspiration, um, and, and and engagement, treating people with a you know view, viewing the best of them. If I can give this to you, you're going to give the best of me. I think was uh, what I found quite innovative about him, and those were the sort of three points that I think we can we can take forward in our uh, leadership practice today. Yeah, excellent. I like how he he went for the um the uh, the the poachers, criminals, really, to in order to draw them out and to draw the skills out of them, and gave them an opportunity to, as you say, improve, better themselves, better their station in life, and come out of the military um, with new and different skills. That's uh, that is quite forward thinking when we reflect back on the times. Well, yeah, when you when you think that the majority of of the, of the you know the army, the navy at the time, were filled with people who had been given like you know choice, they were either came out of prison they were starving or they were given the choice you know it's, it's this or nothing or press gang doing the navy they're a press gang you know people were, you know whacked on the head and dragged off and woke up and they were suddenly in the navy and that was it so you know now when you've got people would go and you know it's a it's a career aspiration um for for, for, for people perhaps like our, you know canadian military with fairly small you know dedicated professionals in those days wasn't so much the professionals it was, it was, it was there was no other choice if you were if you were in trouble with the uh, the magistrate and you had no job and you were hungry then it was probably the army you were going to go into the caliber of recruit probably wasn't as high as it is today so for him to take that type of approach where you thought these are all criminals who need to be flogged and kept in line and he's sort of saying no why don't we teach people to read and write now, let's move on then to our second uh, leadership lesson from history. And the second figure you wanted to talk about, someone much more modern. Uh, who is it that you have for us in the, in the second half of today's podcast? Okay, so seemingly completely different. And that's um, uh, the um, singer-songwriter, um, probably best known for his work with the rock band Thin Lizzy. And that's uh, Phil Lynott. A little bit of background then on Phil Lynott. Okay, well, one of the first things we, we mentioned about with the pronunciation of his of his name. Now, often a lot of people have always pronounced it as being Phil Linnett. Um, but only fairly recently I saw an interview with his one, a read an interview with one of his daughters who said that no, dad always was annoyed when people pronounced his name Linnett and not Linot. As he said, I'm not an effing bird. <laughs> Um, which I thought was quite was quite good, but but so 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 Phil Lynott, um born in 1949, um, moved to Ireland as 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 a, as a child, um, brought up by his grandparents, and then lived in lived in Dublin. Um, he was yeah, say so probably best recognised for being the founding member, leading vocalist, bassist, and principal songwriter for the rock band Thin Lizzy. Um, known for the, his sort of imaginative um, lyrics where he tended to blend in um, Celtic culture, 
some you know working class tales, characters from his own sort of experience that he put together. So a, a bit of a lyricist, um, and also had a distinctive uh, plectrum-based style of playing bass. So he wasn't sort of plucking the bass; he tended to more sort of strum it, um, which was you know unusual in um, in some ways. Um, the Lizzie became a you know, very popular live attraction. Um, over the years, sort of late seventies, early into the early, sorry, early late seventies into the early eighties, um, and and the style of music changed from being more perhaps uh, a trad sort of Celtic folk stroke um, rock that you would have heard from songs like Whiskey in a Jar, um, more to a, a hard rock edge that he had with a sort of dual guitar playing of the later stuff so things like sort of um you know killer on the loose and cold sweat were songs that were had a much harder edge to them and then towards the sort of you know early sort of to mid 80s uh, he broke from thin lizzy but on a on a solo career he po- published two books of poetry um but unfortunately um as with a number of people um, particularly in that in the industry, he he had faced a long going battle um, with uh, drug addiction, particularly to heroin, and unfortunately he died in 1986, um, aged only 36. Um, so that was uh, uh, not from a drug overdose. I think he he died from pneumonia um, eventually. Okay. You th- thanks for the background on on him, and now tell us uh, you've you've pl- again plucked out three leadership lessons from his life and career. What can you share with us? Yeah, well, well one again was I think was he was he was in, it was innovative um, in that he had done that sort of fused together sort of more traditional um, Celtic influences, rock, even his. Um, his vocal style had a sort of set of, of sort of jazz to it. It was a sort of slightly offbeat in the way in which he um, which he sang. Um, as a songwriter, what I think was interesting there is that um, one of your we played back to one of your heroes in Bob Dylan. Um, in fact, in early in his career, he always felt sort of daunted that he would never be able to write in the same way as somebody like the Beatles or, or Bob Dylan, you know, he wouldn't be able to write. He said he could never write, you know, Desolation Row, you know, 12 verses, every verse is is, is perfect. He couldn't how could he do that. Um, but I think he, he sort of got in there that the acceptance that if you made mistakes, you just got better. And so part of what I thought was the uh, lesson was about is, is, is innovation, but he's prepared to preparedness to make mistakes and to try again, and that was the only way that you were going to improve was that you were going to, you know, keep on, keep on, sort of trying and um, uh, doing doing things differently. I think the other thing that 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 struck me with him is, and I think this is an interesting, you know, leadership point that people can be two things at the same time, and they can both be true. And I think sometimes, particularly, we we tend to have this idea that we pigeonhole people into one. You know, group over here. Ah, so ah, so this is you. You're like this. And it's a bit like I always said. If you did something like Myers Briggs, one of the dangers of doing Myers Briggs is you said, ah, so somebody is, uh, you know, INTJ. 
let's just go and put that little badge on them. And I always remember if you've been in a workplace where people have done it, people have got the badge on. You know, I am an INTJ. You know, and then he and he wasn't. He was. He had sort of the ability to to combine different aspects of his personality. So whether it was, you know, he was both a rock star and a poet. He could be have Celtic influences and rock influences. He was also incredibly proud to be black and incredibly proud to be Irish. No, and at a time when you're thinking sort of what was that when he's born, you know, 50s, late, like born in 49, so early 50s, being black and Irish wasn't that common in Dublin. And yet it was part of his, um, you know, personality that he felt at ease with both aspects. Mm-hmm. And you could right. be both. And and so I think that's a, a lesson to it, that we don't pigeonhole people too easily into they are like this saw and behaved like this, that means they're like this. Again, back to our point we've talked about before about separating personality, sorry, behaviour from the person. Um, and then the, 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 the final part I had with him really was um, he understood the power of image. And he understood, I mean, you know, if you look at pictures of, of, of Phil Liner um, and certainly some of the iconic ones, you know, he, he's, he's uber cool. The the guy, I mean, his wife quoted once, uh, Philip was a rock star even when brushing his teeth. You know, it was just... <laughs> I, I aspire to that every morning. You'll often yeah. find me in front of the in front of the, the mirror attempting my rock star status with my toothbrush. But, and I fail and, miserably compared to Phil Linen. And, and I think he got that point there about you, you know, you needed to um, understand that people were going, had certain expectations of you, um, performer, and they were looking for certain things. And no, and I think that's where it comes into leadership. It's not about, about, about being an act, but the fact that wherever you were, there was an expectation of you, and you better live up to the expectation that people had. Um, we've talked about this in, in leadership with Peter Rumpel, um, you know, on our previous podcasts, when, you know, you were talking about this idea that, you know, an actor like Leonardo DiCaprio, everybody has an expectation of him when he sets on uh, steps on set. And they're all watching what he does and what he doesn't do. And it's the same with a leader. People are watching what they do and don't do. And they're they're making decisions, they're making uh, causing opinions on that. And I think um, Phil... Um, Liner understood that. He understood that when he got on stage, there was a certain persona he had to have, and that was pretty part of who he was. Um, and as he'd said in an interview once, you know, no, nobody wants to pay to come and see money to look like the guy that's standing next to him in the audience. Now, I know when grunge came in, no disrespect to Kurt Cobain and people like that, but you know that was the idea. Everybody looked like the people that were in the audience. But with him, you came to see a rock star, that's what you're going to see. Um, so he... Uh, I think that was a part. There's a wonderful quote, if you don't like me, you know, me sharing with this, um, from interviews when he said, you know, there are those awkward questions that interviewers ask. Um, and one of them, what he said was, when people say, well, so what, so what else do you have to say to the fans? And he said, uh, he had a great answer. He said, look, I hate those guys in interviews that say, come and see the band and buy all the records. He said, they always sound so insincere. So I'd like to be really, really sincere. Come and see the band and buy all the records. <laughs> Great, laying it out there. You're really, really telling it like it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, be honest about it. that's that's what, what that's what we wanted for. Um, and just before we, we move on from here, there's a couple. If, if people haven't you know, um, heard a lot of his work, uh, tends to be the songs that get a lot of airplay. People remember um, tunes like um, the. Boys are back in town. Jailbreak, probably the two that get played the most. Perhaps whiskey in a jar as well. 
Um, but he, he, there was a lot of other tunes as well that would be worth looking at. So I would recommend people trying something like Renegade, uh, Don't Believe a Word, or Emerald, which talks a lot about his um, his passion for his Irish roots, um, are worth a listen to as, as well. And after he died, um, yeah, people still listen to his music. And as a good friend of his said in the documentary, Phil would have been happy that my my obviously my work wasn't effing shit because people are still listening to it. Um, had a statue made it put up in Dublin. There were postage stamps in Ireland for him. Um, so, um, yeah, interesting, even though it's uh, a number of years ago since he died, people still listen to his music and probably uh, will be for a long time to come. Where can we find that documentary that you referenced? Um, that is one available on, I I think it's on Prime, uh, Amazon Prime, Prime Video, if okay. I remember rightly. There's a, there's a good documentary on there. Um, about Phil Phil Liner and, he, and his and his life, um, people that knew him. Um, so that's that's well worth the watch. There's there's one or two around, but they're um, that, that's one I'm taking a look at. Well, thank you, Russell. Now, as we wrap up our discussion today, um, you had some similarities that you were drawing between these two very different, very disparate figures. Um, some some correlations that you'd uh, yeah. alluded to. What have you got? Well, yeah, because they sort of sound like completely different people. There'd be nothing in um, in, in common at all. Um, the first thing I think is is that idea that they they both had an element of innovation in what they did. You now I said with Sir John Moore, it was over um, you know infantry tactics, used the Martello towers. With Phil, with Phil Liner, it was it was his sort of melding together um, of us of the traditional Celtic bit of jazz rock and you know the, the the sort of poetic element of his of his of his lyrics. So I think there was um, there was that. And in both instances, that innovation comes from borrowing from other cultures, right? Uh, Sir John Moore is borrowing from what he learned on the peninsula and what he learned in the uh, on the North American continent. Uh, Phil Lynette is borrowing from uh, Irish and from his Irish roots and from his rock and roll influences, infusing things together in both instances. Yeah, uh, you know, and he and he was a sort of you know fan of, of Hendrix and people like that. So you know, getting that idea for some of of what 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 he he did. So. Um, I would say innovators not necessarily the most. They're not uh, original innovators, but I think we talked about this when you when you were talking about with Andy Andy Warhol um, and Bob Dylan about taking influence from other people and then putting a spin on it and coming up with something that was new. It didn't have to be totally original because, in reality, how much things are completely new that nobody's ever 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 thought of before. But they've taken things that perhaps the people haven't thought about putting together before and done that. Um, particularly at a time which wasn't necessarily um, lots of other people doing it or it wasn't necessarily popular for them to do it. Um, the, the, the second point was um, they both, in their own way, had this idea of, of giving a, a figure for, as inspiration for people. As I said, you know, Phil Liner understood about image and he understood about being a rock, a rock star and what people expected a rock star to be, and he created that persona. Um, that the people could look up to. And I think in his own way, Sir John Moore, again, understood what his soldiers were looking for, what they needed from in the leader, and he would and he could provide that. He could find that part of his persona that he would be the person that they would look up and see where he was on the battlefield in the same way that people would look up at a gig and see, you know, there's there's Phil Lynott gunning the crowd with his base because, you know, um, he's not the shy. They, they, neither of them seem to be the sort of shy retiring types that disappeared into the backdrop, you know. So they they under they understood, I think, the power of um, their personality 
um, and all, the, all, the, all that, that sort of figurehead that they represented and how that would inspire others. And the, the final thing with both of them, I mean, they were not super young when they died. You know, Lynott was 36, Sir John Moore was 47. They both left with the idea of what, what, what could have been. And I think that's came back from the article that you'd sent me about um, Sir John is that, you know, well, what, what would he gone on to have done if he hadn't been killed at the age of 47? Because the chances are he would have probably lived another 20 years, would have led the British Army in the peninsula. Would he have been as successful as Wellington, more successful? Would he have done things differently, probably? What could he have achieved? And I think the same thing with, with Phil Liner. You know, we saw what he'd done in and heard what he'd done with, with Thin Lizzie and, and then he moved on with Grand Slam. And you sort of thought, you know, w- there was more more to come. And, and I suppose you're sort of always left with somebody that that that, that dies uh, and uh, not at a ripe old age, but at an earlier age, and you sort of wonder what was going to come next from them. So I think they have, they both have that in common that there was possibly the greatest could have been to come, but we just we just never got to never got to see it. So uh, and were they also both of these men were they not outsiders to the English establishment? You've described um, Phil Lynott was an Irishman living in Dublin, also a black man, as you say. So um, and um, Sir John Moore was Scottish. So they were they were neither of them part of the English establishment. They were both they were both imports too. And to some extent, it's it's those it's that outsider status that can often lead to innovation. I found when I look at history historical examples. Yeah, they they, they they could they could could well be. Although you know there were a lot of a lot of Scottish um, people involved in the in the military in in, in Britain. But I, yeah, I, I think they they were certainly not necessarily anti-establishment, but they weren't establishment-made figures who who were cookie cutter out of this is what we would expect. You know, you know this is this is what a um, this is what rock music needs to sound like. If you listen to Thin Lizzy, it's not quite the same as other stuff that was around at the time. You know, if you look at Sir John Moore's tactics, they're not quite the same as what was around with everybody else was doing. So I, I think that they were um, part of it, aside from the establishment. I don't necessarily complete outsiders, but they they had a um, they certainly weren't they were they were trendsetters rather than rather than followers. Thanks for leading us through those historical examples, Russell. These are great leadership lessons from history. And we'll look forward again to uh, revisiting this topic when we do the next in this kind of irregular series of leadership lessons from history. Thanks for joining us today, everybody, on today's podcast, the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you'd like to find out more, please subscribe to our podcasts on your podcast provider of choice and so that you can get uh, uh, notifications of when the next episodes are going to be released. We would also love to hear from you. Please reach out to us on our website at I need to effing talk to you.com. And we look forward to hearing from you some of your favorite historical figures from history and what leadership lessons we can glean from them. Um, thanks very much for joining us today. And we really have appreciated your listenership today. Thanks, everybody. And look forward to you joining us soon. Bye.